If you're wondering why we sing, sang a resurrection song this morning, it's because we're going to get into Jonah chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to see uh, the picture of resurrection at least foreshadowed here in the second chapter of Jonah. Just as a reminder, last week we started this sermon series on Jonah, and we started with the themes of God's mercy and justice and his love for the nations. We saw in chapter 1 and in all of the minor prophets how God shows his great love, not just for his people Israel, but for all the people he created, for all the nations, and how Jonah, as God's prophet, is reticent or unwilling to offer that same mercy to others. He's happy to receive God's mercy for himself and to uh, preach God's judgment or his justice to others. But the joy that we have as Christians is that God, uh, through Jesus, gives us both. This morning, as we begin, or before we open up Jonah chapter 2, I want to just note something that we didn't note last week, but that is significant here as we are going to read the title in my Bible, that's Jonah's Prayer. And it's that the book of Jonah is really made up of a number of call and response sections. Namely, it's the Lord calling and Jonah responding, or the Lord calling and the fish responding, or the Lord calling and the sailors responding. And so if you read just a little bit carefully through what we've already gone through last week, you see that the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, get up and go. Get up and go to Nineveh. And Jonah gets up and he goes to Tarshish, the opposite direction. He responds, but not obediently. And then the Lord uh, hurls a great wind and a mighty tempest arose upon the sea. The Lord uh, calls, or yeah, the Lord sends a storm, and the sailors say first to one another, then to their gods, and then they respond finally to the Lord God. And we see that same theme in chapters 3 and 4, the word of the Lord com- coming to Jonah a second time, saying, get up and go. And this time the Lord, or Jonah does get up, and he does go where God calls him to. And on and on it goes, this call of the Lord and the response of his creation, of his people, or of humanity. And so we're starting this morning's text by reading Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, because really, in the story, that's the start of the next section. So the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. That's his, this is his response. And he said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Now, I want to just pause for a moment and help you see that Jonah has it backwards. And I think, if we're honest with ourselves, that's so often true of all of us, isn't it? That we so often go through life thinking that I'm in it by myself, on my own. I have to act and then I have to wait for God to respond. I have to do something and hopefully the Lord will hear me. Hopefully he'll respond. But Jonah has it backwards as we see in looking at the story or the, the book of Jonah more broadly. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, the underworld, I cried and you heard my voice. 
For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. My, our weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay vain regard, excuse me, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will celebrate to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then we see this call and response one more time. The Lord spoke to the fish, and just like that, the fish vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jonah, not for the first time in this story, and certainly not for the last, Jonah is being a little dramatic. We might say he's just being extra. Jonah has cast, if if you have your Bibles open or if you remember what we just read, Jonah has pictured the, the seaweed wrapping around his head. He's pictured himself going not just into the sea, into the depths of the ocean, but into Sheol, into the the underworld or the chasm below the sea. And to help us kind of understand how and why Jonah's going over the top, why he's being a little bit extra, I want to show this picture of the ancient Near Eastern concept or world picture. I said last week that many different nations around Israel all worshipped many different gods, And the Israelites worshipped one God. But from the best we can tell from history, what all people living in the ancient Near East had in common was a a world picture. They had different worldviews. They imagined different gods in control and different spiritual realities. But they had a very similar understanding of the way the world worked physically. And so if you remember last week, Uh, As the storm is happening and the sailors are crying out to their many different gods. Maybe they're crying out to the god of the ocean or of the sea, which you can see on the edges there. Maybe they're crying out to the god of dry land. Maybe even they're crying out to some little god of the underworld. But Jonah says, I worship the god of heaven, which is above the firmament, above the waters, above the firmament. And he made the sea and the dry ground. Jonah's claiming that his God is in control of the whole thing. Everything above and everything spread out. The dry land that, they're, that normally they'd be standing on and the sea that they're in with this boat. Which is why the sailors are so afraid. Because the God, this God is in control of everything. This week, uh, Jonah in his prayer, says that God casts him down into Sheol, which you can see in the black there. And the ancients, different, again, different cultures had different words for it, but they believed that if heaven is up 
and the, literally up, and the earth is present with us, then the underworld is literally down beneath your feet. And so you bury people in the ground to help them on their way to the journey into the afterlife. The ancients had no concept of going to heaven after you die. You would never go up. Up is where God is, not where people end up. And so you have the story of the, um, all the way in in Genesis chapter 9, the story of people building the Tower of Babel, and they say, let's build a tower that reaches up to the heavens. They literally believed that they could build one high enough that would get them there, and that would be the only way that they would get to heaven. And then they would be like God. But Jonah is going the other direction this week. And not just, not just literally going into the sea, he directly says, I was cast all the way into Sheol, into the underworld. And then at several points throughout his prayer makes reference to uh, the land whose bars close upon me forever, the pit, uh, the, uh, the deep, all of these different references just explaining just how traumatic this was for him and how far down in his mind he was going. But I'm going through all of this, and I'm, I'm going to leave the slide up there for just a few more minutes, but I'm going through all of this because I want you to see that what, we're, what Jonah's prayer is all about is really about resurrection. It's about going into death and coming out of death into new life. And Jonah, uh, despite the fact that he is being pretty extra here, despite the fact that his prayer is really mostly about himself, he does get one thing right. Right at the end, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And even in verse 6, he says, you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah understands that the resurrection that he has experienced, that he's tasted, resurrection comes from the Lord. Now, what about us? What about you? Have you ever tasted God's deliverance? Have you ever been given new life, been given a second chance? I think if we're honest, all of us would have to say yes. If we say, no, my whole life has been up to me, probably we're making the same mistake that Jonah's made and our, our perspective is a little too narrow. We're looking just at ourselves. But if we're honest, especially if we're honest as Christians, then one of the things we always begin by coming to God in celebration and thanksgiving is that he, as I said in the introduction, he has called us to be his people. He has given us a second chance. He has given us new life by his spirit from the beginning. And so all of our lives are lived as as new life, life by the spirit, a second chance to leave a life of sin and death behind and live by the spirit with God's help. But when you have been given a second chance, maybe something very specific comes to mind. Maybe uh, like the Slaughter family, you experience a, a, a physically traumatic event and life is never the same afterwards. Maybe you have any number of other trials and, and pain and sorrow. And you have another chance after that. How do you respond? How as God's people do we respond to the second chances that God gives us? 
I spent some time this week meditating or reflecting, excuse me, on the many times in which God has given me second chances or others, other people have given me second chances. And, and I came away with one thing, which was that usually how I respond to second chance is by needing a third chance. In other words, usually I don't get it right the first time or the second. I need another second chance and another We come again and again and again to God's grace, to his forgiveness, to his mercy seat. We'd rather not go to the judgment seat. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you do what Jonah did in this passage. Jonah does two things in this text. In verse 9, I'll get rid of this. In verse 9, Jonah makes a big promise to the Lord. Have you ever done that? God delivers you from something. You say, now, God, I'm going to change everything about myself. I'm never going to go back to that sin again. Jonah says, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. This is what I was thinking about when we finished our service last week and said that we're so good at making promises and so bad at keeping them. But only God makes promises that we can trust. And we see the same thing in chapters 3 and 4 with Jonah. That Jonah really has no joy at all in the sacrifice that he gives to the Lord. There's no thanksgiving. In fact, Jonah might well get up and go to to Nineveh, but he does, on the outside he's obedient, but inside we see in chapters 3 and 4 that his heart is filled with anger, with frustration, with, with judgment. As I said, he doesn't want God's mercy for, the other, for others. He wants God's justice. And so he preaches a sermon that says, three days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's, there, there's no grace. There's no mercy in that at all. Jonah makes big promises. That's the first thing he does. And the second thing he does is sweeping generalizations about others. Maybe you're good at this as well. Once you've learned a lesson, once you've been given new life, you could say, only a fool would have do that again. Only a fool would make that mistake. Forgetting, forgetting that God has just given me new life. And so Jonah in verse 8 says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And the Hebrew scholars in the room will know that that last word, steadfast love, is the Hebrew word hesed, which is tied very closely to God's character, to his steadfast love, his loving kindness. So Jonah, what Jonah is basically saying here is that all the people who have this perspective of the earth but who don't worship the real God, they have no hope of knowing the one true God or knowing his steadfast love. But remember last week, remember what we learned that, that God has just shown that he can turn hearts. God has just shown that, that the Canaanites who go from, the Canaanite sailors who go from worshiping their own gods to talking amongst themselves in the matter, in the midst of one storm, they forsake their hopelessness and they turn to the God of steadfast love and they sacrifice to him. What we'll see in the next chapters is that Jonah's sermon, the, the, the weak 
judgy sermon. Three days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It turns the hearts of the people of Nineveh away from their gods and toward the one true God. In fact, it seems like the person that God has the hardest time redeeming is Jonah. That Jonah, the one who's supposed to be the prophet of God, who's supposed to be among the the leaders of the people of God, Jonah is the one who has the hardest time repenting and really responding to God's call. Jonah will learn, as I said, in the coming chapters, that we are good at making promises, but only God is good at keeping them. We, uh, and Jonah promises that he will be obedient to God because God saved him from death. Jonah's faith here, or or his, his prayer, excuse me, is a very selfish one. He gets the order of things wrong. I called out to God and he answered me. No, Jonah, God called you and you responded in sin. But Jonah promises here at the end of chapter 2 to respond to God in obedience because God had saved him from death. I think if if we're supposed to make something of this, perhaps it should be two things. One should be that we ought to be careful looking at Jonah and other characters in the Old Testament and in Scripture, looking to them as perfect role models. We can always learn from the story of Jonah. We can always learn from any number of other stories in Scripture, but we need to be careful not to make these people larger than life. They, like us, are human. But the other thing I think we need to make of this is to put this story in the broader context again. I've said to the Sermon Lab people many times, and hopefully I've said to all of you many times, that If we want to understand scripture, we have to see how all of the story in the Old Testament leads into the person and work of Jesus, and all the story of the New Testament flows out from the person and the work of Jesus. So the Old Testament points us, foreshadows to a a true and better resurrection than the resurrection that Jonah has. And likewise, the New Testament is about the working out of Jesus' resurrection and his rule and reign from heaven in his ascension. So what does it mean for us to understand the story of Jonah or this morning the prayer of Jonah in the bigger context? Well, Jonah, as I said, promises to be obedient because God saves him from death. But Jesus... Jesus promises to be obedient to his father, knowing full well that obedience guarantees his death. Jonah prays a prayer of submission after his ordeal. But Jesus submits his will to the father before he enters into his suffering. Jonah is not just a a quote-unquote bad example But Jonah points us to the perfect, with with his imperfect example, points us to the perfect example of Jesus. Jonah wants to sit in judgment. Verse 8. He's had his little resurrection experience. And from from the heights of dry ground, Jonah feels confident, saying that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope 
for steadfast love. There's no hope for them. Jonah feels confident in sitting in judgment over the world. But again, if we look at this ancient picture of the world, Jonah has really only ascended from the depths to earth. He's only been given a second chance. It's Jesus who has ascended into heaven, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and who will come to judge the living and the dead. Only Jesus has the right to judge. Only Jesus has the wisdom to judge. Not Jonah. Not us. It's important for us to remember that whether we are Jonah or whether we are trying to follow Jesus, that suffering will come. Following Jesus is not, as many of you have explained and illustrated to me over the years, following Jesus is not a path to sidestep suffering or pain or difficulty in our lives. Whether we're Jonah, whether we're Jesus, or whether we are who we are, who God has made us to be today, suffering and pain will find us. That's part of what it means to live as people in a broken and sinful world. But the question for us this morning is, will we submit to God before our suffering, before our pain, like Jesus did? Or will we submit to him after, like Jonah? Will, like Jesus, are we willing to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? Are we willing to pray, to say, God, please take this cup from me, but at the end of the day, not what I want, what you want. I trust that your ways are better for me than my ways. Do we trust God to control and to direct our lives before the suffering happens? Or like Jonah, do we go through suffering? Do we go through trial? Do we taste God's deliverance? And only then promise to obey. You see, I've said last week, and I want to say again this week, that our God is a God who renews, who restores, who redeems. God has been about that work of redemption and restoration since the fall. And he's going to make all things new. But we can only really taste the joy of God's renewal, of his redemption, and of his restoration. We can only taste the joy of that renewal in our own lives when we allow God, or better yet, after we allow God, control over our lives. In other words, if we go through pain and suffering, and only then give, give control of our lives over to Jesus, then we, we miss out on the redeeming work that God was doing, on the lessons we could have learned, on the the maturing that God had for us through that pain. But if following the way of Jesus, we submit our lives to God now, while we're still, while suffering is still ahead of us, or maybe even while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death today, then from this day forward, God redeems and restores and renews our hearts our lives, our soul and spirit through the suffering and through the pain and through the evil of our world. 
As we close, I want to remind you of the framework that we started with this morning. The framework that, that our submission to God is not about trying to earn his favor, earn his approval, or trying to get God to do some good work in our lives. The framework of Jonah is a framework of God's call and Jonah's response. God's call and creation's response. And at the end of the book, it ends with God's call or God's question. Should I not pity that great city? And the response is left to us, to the readers, to the hearers, to God's people today. And so if we say this morning, maybe for the first time or for the thousandth time, yes, Lord, I submit control of my life to you. We don't do it initiating some relationship with God and hoping that he will respond. We do it simply out of obedience and out of love to the God who has already called us to new life. As John says, we love because he first loved us. So let's close in prayer this morning and thank God for his great love. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your great love. We thank you and praise you for your son Jesus' perfect obedience. In Jonah, we see our own weakness. We see our own tendency to judge others. Are, are being too quick to make sweeping promises that we can't keep, to make broad generalizations that we are not wise enough to make. But God, this world is in your hands, not in ours. And so we want to respond again this morning in prayer, in song, and in another week of faithful service to the great love that you have poured out on us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your deliverance of Jonah by providing the fish, by providing a mission for him to return to. And we thank you for your deliverance of us as well, that you give us second chances, third chances, and, and even more. God, that you will not turn we praise you that you will not turn, that you will not stray from the work of redemption, the work of restoration, and the work of renewal that you are doing in our, in our world. And we ask, Lord, that you'd continue that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.